On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we celebrate over 25,000 downloads, review recent guidance from CMS regarding 24-hour stays, discuss the Consolidated Appropriations Act and its impact on ASCs, discuss recent issues with ASCs, and look back on 2020 and look forward to 2021. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is brought to you through the generous support of our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Intelair, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, Medicus IT, and BHG Patient Lending. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, all of whom have been carefully screened for the quality of their products and services and their dedication to the ASC industry. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCpodcast.com and please consider them for your center's needs. Happy holidays and welcome to episode 120 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for December 31st, 2020, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, Chief Operating Officer and owner of AHS, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. So... It's a great day today. It's the last day of 2020. So happy last day of 2020, everyone. And let's uh, celebrate it disappearing, hopefully, Mm -hmm. at 11.59 tonight. We have a a Zoom session already set up with the rest of the family so that we can uh, all be together. We'll all wave goodbye to 2020 (laughs) and keep our fingers crossed for a good 21. Yeah, this actually breaks a tradition because my sister and I have been together on Uh New Year's Eve um, since we were like... I mean, very young. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's possible that we've never missed a year. So we'll be together. It's just yeah, we'll be separate. Definitely. But it's a interesting kind of a melancholy situation. But uh, speaking of melancholy, I'm a little tired today. I'm, I was in New York City yesterday. And unfortunately, as seems fitting, given this the way this year is, uh, I had an auto accident on the way back home. So my uh, my nice car is not so nice right now. So Sue and I have been spending the last couple hours dealing with rental cars and all those other things. So uh, it was not a fun way to end the year. I'm all right, by the way. I, I, no injuries to anybody involved in that. It's just that the, the car is a little sick. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And you were, what, five hours away from home. Five so hours dealing away with from it there. Home, and he, yeah. he did get home, I won't say last night. It was, <laughs> it was like 6.30 this morning. morning. <laughs> but. Yeah, it's just frustrating. When you put 60,000 miles a year on a car, though, I mean, mm-hmm. statistically, unfortunately, this is going to happen. But it's still yeah. a little frustrating. 
Uh, we also, but on the on a high note, uh, we are well over twenty five thousand downloads right now. I just haven't had an opportunity to actually celebrate it, so I thought, you know, that's quite a milestone mm-hmm. uh, for us. Uh, we are, of course, the most popular. Um, well, we can say that because there are no other ASC podcasts really out there right now uh, that are uh, dedicated specifically for ASCs, targeted toward you know the needs of uh, the regulatory needs and financial needs of our organizations on a regular basis. So, thank you to all of our loyal listeners. It's been uh, a pleasure to be with you. This ends our second year, right? <laughs> trying to add things know. up. Yes, it's I, I don't no. Have a good sense it is it our right third now. year. It is our third year doing this. How did I forget that? We started in 2018. Hmm. Okay. So uh, yeah, so three years doing that. It's hard to believe. Time has flown. Um, now, traditionally in December, Ambitory Healthcare Strategies holds its year-end retreat. It tends uh-huh. to be kind of combined with the Christmas party. So yeah. needless to say, that did not occur this year. And, and what we've done in the past, uh, those of you that um, um, that have listened to us loyally, uh-huh. you might listen to last year's Christmas where we, we all got together and we sang a song. So it is well worth uh, logging in just to hear... Uh, that song. So I forgot that, or did I block it out? Yeah, I think or? you blocked it out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but the, we always enjoy that so much. And actually, we heard from Judy, our director of educational services, that she's feeling so isolated yeah. right now. So we're going to have to set up a Zoom with the company. But you know, it. it yeah, this. Is I think the, we all miss that getting together once in a while because yeah. we, where we work remotely, it's important to. We haven't even had time to be together in Zoom lately. It has been very busy. I'll tell you, most of what we've been dealing with too, Sue, has been exposure issues. Like at least Mm -hmm. two hours a day I'm dealing with, you know, one of our centers that's had some type of an exposure and walking through what needs to be done. And if it's not that, it's, you know, PPP. It's, uh, I mean, there's just so many issues going on right now. Um, It is, you know, a very uh, challenging time. And when we do hold our retreat at the Mm -hmm. end of the year, um, you know, we we bring everybody on the podcast. Now, last year, as I said, we had a Christmas. We um, we did a, a song, but um, but it's it's been nice just to kind of look back on the mm-hmm. year. Uh, we're going to do that today, but it'll just be the two of us uh, talking a little bit about it, and uh, um, you know, just some lessons that we've learned, a little bit more perspective. But there is a lot of news that actually has happened, mm-hmm. and, and we only recorded three days ago, so that's yeah. uh, how dynamic this industry has has become, and um, a lot going on. And then one disappointing thing, you and I, actually, when we were coming back from dropping off one of the cars and picking up another one, mm-hmm. um, we were talking about the uh, the variant of the coronavirus, uh, which, mm-hmm. as, as as when we're recording right now, um, it's been found in Colorado and then California, mm-hmm. I think it was just announced today. So I think we're but all concerned about that. They say they haven't found it in New, York, in New York State yet. Yeah. And I guess they are testing for different variations. I don't think specifically for that one, but they haven't found any. That have that are different than yeah. what they expected, but I'm sure it will be. And yeah, know, it's, it's definitely just, a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have a conversation. We got a, a lot of things to go through, and I kind of think that this is somewhat randomly <laughs> put in here. But we did get a call from one of our clients asking about the H uh, the HHS reporting for uh, funding that you might receive from CMS. Uh, for uh, uh, if you are a Medicare um, provider, fee-for-service provider. Uh, the reporting period is February 15th, so you'll have to report by February 15th. The website to be able to do that reporting is not available yet. So we will try to keep you up to date on that and provide a link when that becomes available. Sue, so, uh, as we were talking about earlier, can you talk a little bit about the uh, some of the exposure guidance that we've received? Mm-hmm. The best thing to do really is to follow the CDC guidelines, um, 
which to I'll check them periodically. To. We yeah. will. Yeah. And, you know, we'll update you when there's new things. It just seems like it's constantly changing. Also, just a reminder, a lot of this does have to do with, with using your judgment and making right. decisions based on the guidance. So they define close contact as someone who was within six feet of an affected person for a cumulative total of 15 minutes or more over a 24-hour period. Um, and that starts from two days before the illness onset of the person you were around mm-hmm. or for asymptomatic patients two days prior to the test specimen collection. That was used Not to determine the results, that, right, but right. The, the, when they collected it. Until the time so the patient, until the time is, the patient is isolated. Yeah. At this time also, um, differential determination of close contact for those using fabric face coverings is not recommended. So they don't count, and honestly, that's what it said. I don't know if they're talking paper, mask coverings as yeah. well. I think unless you're in full PPE, like in a medical setting, I, I think you have to count it as a contact. Right. Um, even if you're wearing you know, a surgical mask or whatever. Um, if you're wearing, as I said, full PPE, like in a healthcare setting, it is not considered an exposure, which makes sense. Otherwise, right. everybody at the hospitals, you know, dealing with people would be out for 10, 14 days each time. And an important point is that whether you have the vaccine or not really has no bearing on these guidelines at this time. So let's, you don't let's, get to stop right. wearing your mask. You don't, you know, if, you've, if you're exposed, even after you've gotten your vaccine, it, it still counts. And that's a, a very important thing to discuss in general is that uh, we, I think we might have mentioned this in the last, pa- last, the last podcast, but um, getting the vaccine is something that you do to protect yourself. It is uh, long term. Um, you are not going to be able to use it to stop wearing a mask. You're not going to be able mm-hmm. to use it in order to avoid a, um, a, a quarantine situation. Yeah. Uh, or an isolation uh, situation. So uh, uh, the vaccine is something that we're doing in order, you know, for a long-term uh, purpose of, uh, of reducing the chance that we're going to get uh, mm-hmm. exposed. So. And hopefully with the, you know, quote-unquote, the herd immunity that right. that this will change, which is what I'm saying, we, you know, we really have to stay up on this. But I'm right af- now they're not. They're right. absolutely not counting it as changing anything. Well, I'm just afraid because what we've been seeing over the last uh, two weeks here is everybody mm-hmm. is just like rushing to get this vaccine. Yeah. And, and I appreciate the, you know, trying to do that. I want my yeah. daughter who works in a nursing home to get it as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. But we just have to realize that I'm, I'm hoping that they're not rushing to do it because they think they're going to be able to back off on some of these standards or start becoming looser about the yeah. way we're treating. You still need to isolate or um, to socially distance. You still need to be wearing those masks. So very important thing. Mm-hmm. So, and I do want to make the point that even reading through all of those guidelines of the CDC, that there are so many things that are still open for interpretation. Yeah. You know, this is good guidance, but if you're next to somebody for five minutes and they're coughing or, yeah. you know, there's just so many different um, ways to look at it. So, so go case by case and, you know, just make sure you're really thinking it through. Well, and we also probably have a legal disclaimer here is mm-hmm. that obviously... Uh, we're doing this based upon our interpretation of these rules. We really do encourage you to uh, to download or to go to the website that we'll link in the uh, mm-hmm. in the podcast here. And of course, uh, you know, we're publishing it here on the thirty first. By Monday, you know, things could have changed, and, mm-hmm. and that that actually is a very strong possibility, uh, given how dynamic this is right now. On a positive note, 
though that wasn't necessarily negative, but on a on a on a, on a different note, on getting a different away from, note, <laughs> from is a CMS on December thirtieth, which was yesterday actually, uh, issued QSO dash twenty one dash oh nine dash ASC because uh, <laughs> we always like to use a lot of initials here. Which uh, and the subject of it was uh, providing flexibility for exceeding the twenty four hour time time frame for patients in ambulatory surgery centers mm-hmm. during COVID nineteen public health emergency. So this is guidance that has been provided by CMS to the uh, surveyors regarding an interpretation of of the conditions for coverage. So uh, in the uh, this guidance, QM, uh, CMS indicated it's committed to taking critical steps to ensure America's healthcare facilities continue to be prepared to respond to COVID-19 during the public health emergency. And what they want to do is they want to provide flexibility for exceeding the 24-hour time frame in ASC. So as COVID-19 cases continue to surge, CMS will temporarily exercise survey enforcement discretion regarding the 24-hour time frame to allow patients to remain in the ASC longer if needed during COVID-19 and, and again, specifically during the public health emergency. This applies, this is important, this applies to ASCs that have not converted to a hospital during the health emergency. So we've talked in the past about those situations in which people can apply to temporarily become a hospital. And very few have. I think it's less than 20 in the country of the 58, 5,900 surgery centers have done that. So this is specifically for those of you that did not uh, convert. Uh, and so just bear with me here because it is a little technical, but I, it, it, this there might be some applicability, though I'm not sure that it, that's really the case. So er- earlier this year, CMS issued a, a process to allow Medicare certified ASC to temporarily enroll as a hospital. In other words, become a hospital instead of ASC, an ASC for a period of time and to provide hospital services. And this was done in April uh, 2020. But those rules when they came out were kind of onerous because they required you to have 24-hour nursing service mm-hmm. even if you didn't have any patients uh, in the center. And the billing and there was just a whole lot That's of That's right. There were so many things. other reasons that we really recommended that you avoid it. And, and also what would happen when you converted back mm-hmm. uh, to, an AS, uh, to an ASC. On November 25th, and we talked about this uh, a couple episodes ago, I think. On November 25th of this year, CMS revised the process to include information on policies that expanded the temporary enrollment process by waiving that particular requirement, which required that uh, these new hospitals, these ASCs, to have a licensed practical nurse or a registered nurse on duty at all times. And this uh, waiver requires ASCs enrolled as hospitals to provide 24-hour nursing services only when there is a patient in the facility. So it makes it a little bit more, uh, less onerous certainly for doing this, allowing facilities to provide nursing services on demand through the use of a 24-7 on-call service in the event a surgeon requests to admit a patient for a required surgical procedure. So with the most recent uptick in cases, CMS is revisiting this, and they're attempting to find ways to adapt program requirements to expand expand capacity to treat patients during this unprecedented time. In the ASC conditions for coverage, section 416.2, an ASC is defined in part as a facility at which the expected duration of services would not exceed 24 hours following admission. That's a, we, we know that one very well because that, that generates that whole three, uh, 23-hour stay conversation that we frequently have. Uh, the interpretive guidelines for the section make it clear that exceeding the 24-hour time frame is expected to be a very rare occurrence, and each rare occurrence is expected to be demonstrated to have been something which ordinarily would not have been foreseen. In other words, you wouldn't even anticipate that. It's not something you would ever schedule. So CMS, uh, with this guidance, indicated that for the remainder of the public health emergency, CMS plans to exercise discretion in enforcing that 24-hour limit 
uh, as described there in Fortress sixteen point two, and provide some uh, to provide flexibility and to allow ASCs to be uh, to keep medically stable patients not requiring hospitalization for observation in the ASC past the twenty four hour time frame, and to lessen the chance of patients being exposed to COVID nineteen through transfer by allowing that additional recovery time in the ASC as needed when issues arise such as the need for post surgical pain control or hydration, which I think is probably the most common situation that mm-hmm. we would have. Uh, we note that this enforcement discretion does not alter whether a procedure is included on the ASC covered procedures list, the CPL, which we talked about in another episode recently, I think two episodes ago. Rather, it provides flexibility during the public health emergency for ASCs to keep medically pa- uh, stable patients for longer than the 24-hour time frame. So I think this is actually going to be very infrequent, Sue. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that sometimes we have to send a patient to a hospital uh-huh. Because uh, the pain hasn't been controlled. Yeah, and it, they don't really need hospital care. They just need some place to have their pain controlled longer or because we're make not sure be they're, open. they're right. hydrated because they're not drinking enough. Right. Now, what yeah. is the procedure for this? Do we know that? Well, there isn't. The, the guidance, I've read the whole guidance, and mm-hmm. I will provide a link to the guidance uh, in the show notes here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's get back to the, the main reason they're doing this is so that the patient doesn't have to be transferred to the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and exposing them to a higher risk facility. And again, yes. I'm not, nothing negative about hospitals, but, you know, being in a hospital, mm-hmm. we're hoping that you're going to have uh, patients that really need to be there. And if yeah. somebody's there just for pain control because mm-hmm. the surgery center can't stay open for more than 23 hours, I mean, this is a very good thing that CMS is doing here. I just mm-hmm. think it's very rare that it happens because mm-hmm. we do such a good job of pain control, but yeah. those situations will arise. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with these regs is that this is all well and good, but keep in mind, you're not going to get paid any additional money for this. Mm-hmm. So, um, the incentive for the surgery center to actually do this, you know, it's going to be a surgery center that really, well, I mean, I think we all care about our patients, but it, it's going to be one that, uh, that, that understands that they're going to be absorbing a financial, you know, taking a, a financial hit here because they're going to have to keep staff yeah. on, uh, in the center. And I think that's the thing Not as you said, everybody wants to do the best patient right. care, but is your staff flexible enough? Can somebody really stay that's right. Time yeah. Can you imagine you're you're a nurse? Back. Can you imagine getting a phone call and saying, "Can you stay until six in the morning?" Mm-hmm. You know, it's just. I mean, the people yeah. that we tend to hire at a surgery center just don't tend to have that flexibility mm-hmm. from a staffing standpoint. But I bet sometimes it can just really be that extra couple hours. Right. But, uh, yeah, exactly. I think it can be a yeah. could be so, a really good. So thing. I think this is this is just a really good indication about how CMS. I mean, there's a lot of things that CMS has really done very well during this, and I think this is this is one of the more positive, mm-hmm. one of the most positive things that I've seen. Um, it's just unfortunately probably won't have a lot of relevance. President Trump signed the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2021, a $900 billion spending bill this week. Some of the key provisions of the bill include $325 billion in aid for small businesses, including $284 billion to the U.S. Small Business Association, or SBA, for first and second PPP forgivable small business loans. And John, you'll give us some more details. Sure. So the provisions, uh, and again, um, unfortunately, Sue, I was just looking. There's still some negotiations going on here, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. So, but this is what we know as of uh, December 31st: is that the provisions regarding the uh, the PPP, uh, which uh, relates to both first time and repeat PPP borrows, have uh, have been released. So borrows making the request must have fewer than 300 employees. You might remember the original one did uh, did allow significantly more employees. Borrowers must have suffered. So this is the big difference. Borrowers have to demonstrate that they suffered a revenue decrease of at least 25% during 
one of the any one of the first three quarters of 2020 yeah. or during the fourth quarter of 2020 if they apply after January 1st, 2021. And the decrease is determined by, by comparing gross receipts in a quarter to the same quarter in the prior year. Now, that's important to note is that it's yeah. receipts-based as opposed to um, uh, you know, accrual a, a based income for those of us that are geeky accountants, which I, it was interesting that now not to get our company involved in this at all, but you know, we received PPP funding for amateur mm -hmm. healthcare strategies. And, uh, originally when I looked at this, we weren't going to be eligible for the second, we're not going to, we're not going to apply for it. But because even though our incomes remain stable, we didn't, you know, lose any clients, we didn't shut down or anything like that. Um, our, our net uh, receipts dropped during that time frame because a lot of our clients were, you know, had been shut down, so they weren't able to pay us during okay. that time. Um, so, uh, again, same thing with a lot of your organizations is that even though your business might have picked up toward the end, maybe you had a really, uh, you know, pretty good – you didn't quite meet that 25% drop during the second quarter because you started up in the beginning of June – um, I would bet that your cash flow suffered. So again, they're looking for cash flow when they're looking at this 25% mm -hmm. drop in income. Now, the doctors will understand this. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, immediately get this. The accountants are, are the ones like myself who got a little concerned until I read that receipt note. Uh, the maximum loan amount, uh, amount an eligible company can receive is the lesser of $2 million or two and a half times the monthly payroll costs incurred during the one year period before the loan is made or during a calendar year or during the calendar year 2019. Uh, 3.5 times monthly payroll if the entity's NAI CS code is 72. I just saw that. I have no idea what that means. Uh, qualified expenses paid with PPP funds are not are now tax deductible for both old and new PPP loans. So what this really means to interpret this is that uh, we're not going to get taxed on the uh, revenue that we receive from PPP, which was a big issue because it would have been, you know, the government gives us this money and then they take it back, you know, by taxing a mm -hmm. part of it. So uh, that, and we believe that in the in the beginning that had always been the intention, but when the IRS got their hands on the regulations, they said, wait a minute, you know, under the, you know, unless somebody revises the IRS regulations, it's not going to be uh, tax deductible. Uh, borrowers can now choose any 8 to 24 week period as their loan forgiveness covered period. Grants received as part of the Economic Injury Disaster Loan or the EIDL under the Small Business Administration will no longer have to reduce it for the PPP uh, forgiveness. Um, and this is uh, the, this item I think is important. A simplified forgiveness application for PPP loans of less than $150,000 will be limited uh, to borrower certifications. Now, I guess I wish I had known that when we applied for our PPP uh, forgiveness because we filled out the big long one. Uh, but it turns out that if we waited a little bit longer, we would have been able to use the shorter form. And forgiven PPP loan funds will be considered tax-exempt income and will increase owner's basis in pass-through entities. Again, pass that on to your, uh, your accountant and they'll understand that. So uh, this is all good news. I know that it might uh, not be something that, uh, that our particular listeners are, are interested in. I'm sure their accountants are going to give this information. But uh, for your owners, you probably do want to at least discuss this during an upcoming board meeting. So let's talk about some recent experiences. Uh, I, I, this tends to be one of the more popular sections of our, our podcast because we talk about real-life things that, that happen. So, mm -hmm. Sue, do you want to start with the first one there? So in some of our recent experiences, um, some issues with vaginal probes have come up. So if you're involved in women's health and you use vaginal probes as part of your procedures, um, either interoperatively or preoperatively, 
It's important to note the probes have to go through high-level disinfection. It's not enough to use a cavi wipe or some other cleaning cloth. Or, or mechanism, know. yeah. Yeah, or cover the probe with a condom, for example. Some, you know, we've seen that. And this is an immediate jeopardy situation, so it's very important to deal with this issue. Right. We have uh, three women's health uh, organizations that do women's health, and this mm-hmm. has come up frequently, usually when we take on the client, when it's a brand new client, when we come in. And so the issue here is that you need to do high-level disinfection, as we indicated. Uh, but it is very common practice, even though it's not a uh, part of the instructions for use. Mm-hmm. It is a common practice that uh, you, know, you just wipe the probe off with a cava wipe, mm-hmm. or you know, and you cover spray it during it. use, yeah. and then and then wipe they cover it. Off, it. But yeah, uh, but it does have to go through high level disinfection. So mm-hmm. many years ago, we had a situation. We picked up a brand new client, and uh, I, the the machine wasn't used frequently. As a matter of fact, it hadn't been used in a while. I didn't even see it because it was hiding in a corner. And sure enough, the surveyors show up. They happen to see it and they uh, they cite him they cite him with an immediate jeopardy uh, which we were able to fix immediately because you know, it wasn't even in use but uh, so don't take any chances on this it just seems to pop up I think this is uh, the fourth time this last week a brand new client of ours that uh, that I recognize the situation they very quickly rectified it so Another thing that's come up, uh, again, is transportation services. I don't think we've ever talked about this in the three years of the podcast, but uh, over the years, and I've been in the business for 30 years now, and and uh, the issue of transportation, in other words, allowing or, or providing uh, transportation for patients that come to your surgery center uh, has come up a number of times. And just a little bit of history is that in the past had been considered uh, inducement. In other words, you're you're encouraging the patient to come to your center by giving them free transportation, giving them something for free, or you're encouraging uh, a patients of a doctor to come to the center without the doctor incurring those costs. So uh, that's where the induce it would be inducement to the patient. It would actually be you know uh, unfair in, uh, unfair inducement to the doctor also. Um, so to avoid problems with uh, the anti-kickback statutes, or AKS, in 2017, the OIG issued a final rule, which is 42 CFR 1001.952, that added certain low-risk safe harbors under the AKS, including protection for free or discounted local transportation services that meet certain specified criteria. Unfortunately, there's about 10 criteria here, so bear with me. But it is important because I think many of you are offering these, especially in urban centers. And it's good to kind of go back and every once in a while revisit it to make sure your policies apply. So number one, there should be a company policy that sets forth the availability of the free or discounted transportation. It is to be applied uniformly and consistently. It's not determined in a manner related to past or anticipated volume or value of federal healthcare program business. And number two is the, this is very important, the the transportation should be offered to all established patients, not just Medicare patients, for example, uh, and to all physicians. So that's another thing that tends to pop up is, you know, say, I'm going to allow Dr. Smith to do it, but I'm not going to do it for Dr. Jones. Mm -hmm. And number three, it should be for an established patient of the entity that is providing the transport. A patient can be established for purposes of the safe harbor after he or she selects and initiates contact with a provider or supplier to schedule an appointment. If a patient is not able to call a provider or supplier himself or has otherwise given consent for a person such as a family member, a case manager, a provider, or a supplier where the patient is um, attending an appointment to schedule appointments for him, then a request for an appointment made on behalf of the patient is sufficient to meet this criteria. That was 
a long one, but yeah. I guess basically you don't want to be in. Uh, you don't want to, right, you don't want to be advertising. Well, and that's the next one is yeah. don't advertise. But you don't want to advertise and get these Try people to get through people a to referral. Your center for yeah. that. Uh, so number four is do not market or otherwise advertise free or discounted transportation. Uh, don't put it on the side of the vehicle that you're using for that free transportation mm-hmm. if you have a, uh, like a shuttle service. And this will make it appear, and the reason for this is it will make it appear like the purpose of the transport is to do, induce the uh, the patient to come to your center. And that just very clearly violates the uh, the regulations here. And you can't have any uh, healthcare marketing, uh, you know, like in your brochures or the, mm-hmm. the patient uh, uh, packet that's provided prior uh, during the transport or at any other time uh, by the drivers who provide the transportation. And drivers or others arranging for transports are not to be paid on a per-beneficiary transported basis. So they should be paid like an hourly rate for the mm-hmm. transporter or something like that. Um, and it has to be local transportation made available only to patients within 25 miles. So you don't want to be, you know, pulling people in from another state. Yeah. I guess another way of saying this too, Send you don't want to. Yeah, right. <laughs> or, or, well, and it's got to be reasonable. That That's yeah. the, uh, you know, it can't be uh, providing uh, an airplane, you know, or a, a luxury service to get there. It's got to be, you know, regular uh, mm-hmm. transport. And of course, the, the transport has to be for the purpose of, of obtaining the medically necessary services that, that you're providing to them. It can't be anything else. You can't take them to the, mm-hmm. um, you know, to the, the grocery store afterwards on the way home. Yeah, swing by the casino or <laughs> right. anything like that. <laughs> Pick up the kids from daycare. <laughs> and the cost of the free or discounted transportation is borne by the entity that is providing or arranging the transport. And it's not shifted to any federal health care program. Yeah, and that doesn't apply too much for us, uh, you know, because we don't have a cost-based uh, reimbursement, but mm-hmm. uh, but it's a good point. And the free or discounted um, yeah. transportation does not involve air, luxury, or ambulance-level t- transport. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of, uh, uh, kind of obvious there. And 10, you can have a shuttle service, which is defined as a vehicle that runs on a set route on a set schedule. Unlike the safe harbor conditions for free or discounted transportation, a shuttle service does not have to be limited to established patients. Okay, so that was exciting. Um, but, but again, something that you can, um, uh, uh, information you can use if you're de- de- deciding whether to, mm-hmm. to, to offer transportation or just to make sure your transportation program meets the requirements. Let's take a brief break here and then we'll come back and we'll talk about 2020 and what's coming up in 2021. Is your ASC meeting all the infection control requirements in the new normal? Let the team of experts at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and the ASC podcast with John Gailey help you be prepared for the new normal with a range of resources. Be prepared for the infection control challenges of your ASC. Our resources include our free podcast. We'll be adding content to help keep you apprised of the changes and the requirements for infection control. And of course, the podcast is always free. And the ASC podcast now has the industry's leading education program for infection control coordinators, which we refer to as the ASC Infection Control Coordinator Training 2020. And we'll be updating this every year, but uh, this training is available at the ASCPodcast.com website. 
This is a recording of the training program to prepare nurses uh, for the role as an infection control prevention coordinator or to improve the skills of uh, coordinators that already have that position in the ASC setting. And it was recorded on April 7, 2020. This is a full-day course focused both on the basic skills necessary to become an infection control coordinator and to build on skills that current coordinators already have. Particular emphasis is placed on the infection control challenges of our current environment and preparing for more rigorous surveys in the near future. After completing the program, attendees will receive a certificate demonstrating that they received the training. The cost of the training is $199.99, and you can get more information about it at the ASCPodcast.com website. Ambitory Healthcare Strategy now offers uh, ongoing retainer-based infection control oversight, which includes an annual infection control mock survey, or more frequently, if you wish, uh, review and revisions to your infection control program annually and, uh, and as needed, annual competencies for your staff on infection control, and that's done during the mock survey, annual training on infection control, also done during this survey, and that's designed for your staff, assistance in investigations of any infections that you might have, assistance in preparing your annual infection control risk assessment, and, of course, access to all of the AHS infection control resources that our clients have come to rely on. And for more information on our retainers, visit the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies website at ah-strategies.com or call John Gailey at 585-594-1167. So given that this is the last day of 2020, thank goodness, um, I thought that we would just do a little bit of a retrospective on the year, kind of look at some of the things that we've learned from the year, and then try to make some predictions long-term. Now, some of these things we've talked about in various po- uh, podcasts in the past, but I just wanted to kind of put it all together in one specific segment in the uh, the podcast. I think we've – Sue, it's, isn't it fair to say we've learned a lot this year? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, certainly taking emergency and disaster planning more serious is definitely one of those. I mean, we've watched what happened with the hurricanes and uh, bad weather uh, situations. And, you know, we said, oh, well, that happened down in Houston. That happened down in Florida. That happened, you know, like in Hurricane Sandy, Mm -hmm. you know, up in, in New York. But, you know. I live in Rochester, New York. How is that ever going to impact me? And we clearly learned that uh, we need to be prepared for any emergency and and that something very serious could occur that would literally impact the entire nation. And -hmm. And um, in ways you might not even think of, like the the shortages and just so so much and and kids being out of school. So you run into problems with your staffing. I just think we've learned a lot about how far-reaching effects of, of one thing can be. Right. And and when we did put together pandemic programs, you've, mm-hmm. you've been involved in the policies for mm-hmm. some of those things. None of our policies ever came close to talking about no. toilet you know, paper. Talk, Nobody right. said stock up on toilet paper. <laughs> or the impact on, you know, like the shutdown or things yeah. like that. I think yeah. we just... Transportation uh, right. shutdowns. Exactly. Homeschooling. You, you know. know, a prolonged periods of time, mm-hmm. you know, two to mm-hmm. three months of being shut down. Yeah. You know, the definition of elective and non-elective procedure. I think mm-hmm. that's another thing that's kind of come out of this is... I, you know, I've said this before. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I don't believe there's such a thing as an elective surgery anymore. I mean, I don't, I don't like that term because people don't elect to have a procedure done. Mm-hmm. Um, they might elect to have this particular alternative done compared to other alternatives, but they're, you know, if, if indeed they don't need those services, 
then they probably, you know, are not eligible for them in the first place. So, um, and that term has really done significant damage to the industry. So, uh, I think that's another thing that we've looked at. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, being urgent or non-urgent maybe is one thing. But again, you know, you you can't really put a timeline on it. That's, I think, another thing that we've really found out. There's not always concrete answers to a lot of things that we're looking for. You know, you have to really put a lot of thought into it. I think a lot of people's QI process and board meetings will be so much stronger because they've learned how we really have to talk this stuff through. That's right. And and make some good decisions and document the decisions we're making. And and to that point, I think the involvement of the governing body has been, uh, we've seen that across the board with our clients, is that, you know, up until, you know, this year, often, you know, the administrator talked during the board meeting and the you know, the board members, let's face it, some of them were texting, they were, you know, looking at their phone, they were, you know, doing whatever, and they weren't totally engaged in it because, uh, in many cases, the administrator kind of ran the show, you know, mm-hmm. on their behalf. And uh, that, you know, the administrator has been, it's still an extremely important part of this, of course, but uh, this is one of those areas where the administrator really needed guidance uh, throughout, needed the help of the board in order to make those decisions. And I'm hoping that during this, many of your boards have become stronger as a result of that. Uh, continuing still with the emergency and disaster planning, I think we import, we recognize the importance of, of an up-to-date program. Uh, if, and I'm just going to tell you, if you have not updated your, your emergency and disaster plan uh, this year, mm-hmm. uh, then you are going to be in deep trouble when the surveyors come through because uh, un- unless you were able to predict everything that happened. Uh, but the uh, And I don't think any of us could do that. But anything that we learn from any of these disasters – and and some of the things that we've learned probably uh, don't relate necessarily to another pandemic, but just mm-hmm. the way we react to this type of a situation. Um, I, I also feel um, that it's helped us to realize the importance of good financial planning. Um, for example, I speak frequently during finance seminars about the importance of keeping a, quite a bit of cash on hand. And in the past, I've said, you know, keeping uh, one to two months of uh, cash on hand is important. And the reason I'll say for that is, well, imagine a scenario in which you don't get cash, you know, you have no cash receipts for a period of time. And I can remember board members saying, you know, that's never going to happen. Well, I told you so. It's, I get that. That's been a good feeling for me to be able to say, I told you so. Unfortunately, that, you know, we're one of the cl- the uh, people that hasn't been paid as a result of their failure to have that cash on hand. Um, but doing good financial planning, making sure you have good financial projections, making sure that you always have a good reserve of cash so that you can keep the, you know, the doors open and not have to go back to the doctors and ask for additional money or go back to the bank. That's another thing that happened during this time is that organizations that thought that they had a line of credit sometimes found out that that line of credit was not available to them during it or it was not sufficient to get through that uh, that time frame. I thought you were going to say something. Okay. Um, so we discussed financial planning during the finance and accounting seminar earlier this month, and I really do encourage you if you uh, if you need some advice or want to think a little bit more about developing financial projections or doing some a deep dive into financial planning and strategic planning that you talk about uh, that you uh, you you listen to that um, and we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more I, I do hope to have a conference shortly on uh, on strategic planning because I feel that's so important I don't know if anybody will attend it uh, but it is something that I want to encourage everybody to think about mm-hmm. and, and certainly it's something that we've learned through this I do want to point out this is uh, totally self-serving here but if you do need help with financial planning and projections, feel free to reach out to me at 585-594-1167 or just email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. That is, uh, that's really, I don't, 
think I've mentioned this in the past, but I actually got into the ASC industry by doing financial projections for a brand new surgery center back in uh, the late 80s. And um, it's something that I'm, I'm really quite passionate about. And I think I'm very good at doing it. And I think now, um, you know, we're, we're in a situation where financial planning, doing financial projections, figuring out what the impact's going to be over the next year, you know, of changes that are, are likely to occur could be very helpful. Uh, Sue, how about the next item? Why don't you... So we've learned a lot about maintaining appropriate inventory <laughs> levels of critical supplies. Um, and again, as we've talked to talked about before, we don't want to be hoarding things right. and, and overdoing it. But the just-in-time kind of supply chain got a lot of people in trouble now. So, Especially for critical supplies. I mean, yeah. I think there's going to be you know some things that you really don't need to set. Because we still have the issue of where are we going to store this. Yeah. Uh, I think I was joking the other day that you know I haven't seen a, a an administrator's office that's been clean in the last six months, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, including my office upstairs, yeah. which has uh, N95 masks, KN95. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got so many of these things that we've stocked up, and you know, we're not even yeah. you know direct healthcare providers. I probably but, better know, not keeping... say that because now I'm going to be robbed because uh, <laughs> people everybody's are... <laughs> after them. <laughs> Keeping track of, of the supply chain and what's happening because there were things that were already a little bit in short supply and then this happened and it was impossible to get these things. Yeah. So yeah, Another important thing that I, I find is that we're much better prepared for another pandemic or another mm-hmm. shutdown. Now, it probably sounds bad like I'm predicting it, but what I'm really meaning is that I think that we can avoid a shutdown in the future mm-hmm. by demonstrating – because we have been able to demonstrate that we're able to stay mm-hmm. open safely, that we can maintain patient safety during this difficult time. Um, and in many ways, I think we're able to do it better than a hospital. A hospital can't control many of those factors. Mm-hmm. We can keep you know sick patients out of our place. Yeah. That's not, that's not, you know, that's what a hospital is for, unfortunately. You know, they're going to have that. Somebody's got to take care of them, and unfortunately, it's going to have to be in the hospital. And I think that is something they found, that the people, the spread is not happening in uh, medical centers, right. and, and it's not happening in schools. So a lot has been learned. And we've been talking a lot lately about staffing and leadership. Um, we've we've talked extensively about staff shortages and how to deal with the mentoring issues and training new staff uh, to be leaders. Um, Sue, when I on the way down to New York uh, before I uh, crashed my car, um, I was reading a book called uh, Mastery by Robert Greene. Now. Green believes that each one of us has within ourselves the potential to be a master. And he suggests that those that really want to succeed in leadership positions enter into a rigorous apprenticeship and absorb the hidden knowledge possessed by those with years of experience and to surge past competitors to surpass them in brilliance. That's actually off of the cover. <laughs> um, and he gave examples of Albert Einstein, Charles Darwin, and Leonardo da Vinci. Now, this this really does sound a little over the top, and he's very engaging, and, and you listen to this, and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, this is not for me. But the author's point is that, that um, one who wishes to excel needs to have an extended period of time with experts who can mentor him. And we've talked about this, Sue, quite a bit. And indeed, our administrator's boot camp is an example of of our attempt, at least, to offer that type of an opportunity to, you know, future administrators in the uh, industry, you know, to raise them to mm-hmm. a different level. And I think this book provides lessons both for those of you that are hoping to get into leadership as well as those that are leaders who wish to groom the next generation. And it really points out the importance of a well-designed and conscious effort to train leaders, which, again, you and I have talked about quite a bit, is, you know, just so often people – 
leave the job quickly. You know, we joke about, you know, on Friday I left and, you know, I was the uh, charge nurse and on Monday I was the administrator uh, or the nurse manager. And those are, that unfortunately is more often the case rather than, oh, I've been training to be the administrator. I've been training to be the nurse manager for the last, um, you know, four years. Um, so, uh, really the emphasis here and the, the one of the points that the book was trying to make is that if you put together a well-designed and conscious program, well, you know, well laid out, even written program, that's going to be a very useful. So this book was really an eye opener for me. And as I said, I'm hoping that the administrators boot camp, which we're going to be following up shortly with mm-hmm. a nurse manager boot camp and an office manager boot camp, will provide one option. If you don't have, I think the best situation is that you have a really experienced administrator that works in your center mm-hmm. and he grooms somebody or he or she grooms somebody for the next three years. And I think that happens more frequently with nurse managers and mm-hmm. less frequently with administrators. Um, but uh, It's a tough thing, though, because often tough. people leave without knowing that they're planning to leave in right. three years from now. And that's just not the way our industry works, mm-hmm. too, is that you know yeah. people don't have that time frame. I, uh, and, and during COVID, we've had a lot of announcements. Uh, a dear friend of mine was just announcing that, you know, that uh, he's going to leave as an administrator, and that was kind of a shocker to me. So I'm, I think that we have to find a way to do this, be it either trying to identify people within our organizations to start grooming or to put together programs like what we're doing with the boot camp, which mm-hmm. is, yeah, I mean, you can probably already tell I'm very, very excited about this and and the possibility. Uh, so, but we again I still encourage you to identify people who might be good candidates for leadership and to take time to prepare them for that position. So, anything else you want to talk about last year or, or this year? I mean, we're we're still twenty twenty. People won't hear this until next year, but mm-hmm. I guess that's enough, right? <laughs> so, let's make some. Some uh, predictions. Unfortunately, these aren't any more positive, but uh, I think one definite prediction is this isn't going to be the last pandemic we're going to have. I think we we all kind of know that we've all – I'm I'm hoping – you know, thankfully, this has not been um, a pandemic with uh, – again, not to minimize it, but um, the spread, you know, the possibility of getting it has not been high. It's not the type of thing that we see in those disaster movies where, you know, 75, Mm -hmm. 85, 95% of the population dies as a result of it. Mm -hmm. But that certainly is something that could happen. Um, And uh, so maybe this was just to give us a little bit of taste of how, uh, I mean, if it even with this small uh, of a, a um, of a spread or, you know, the uh, death rate, mm-hmm. um, how bad it could be if the death rate were even 10 times what it is yeah. now, which wouldn't yeah. even get to, uh, you know, really 10%, I believe. As you problem. said, we'd be so much more ready for it as we, yeah. you know, all the working from home right. and doing Zoom, all that was just new to us. When you think of how just in the few months that, that this has been going on, how it's just second nature to people now. Yeah. We're a little more prepared and I don't think it will be, it would be as painful. And I think too, that we're going to find some positions that have moved off-site, such as billing, coding, um, you know, making pre-op phone calls, mm-hmm. uh, making post-op phone calls. Mm-hmm. All of those things are things that can be done from home yeah. with a good computer system. Um, so, and, you know, if you need the space in the surgery center and you want to hire people that, you know, can deal with screaming children in the background or yep. a uh, over-rambunctious puppy like <laughs> us, um, can can do yeah. that type of job. I think it's, I'm excited about it because that really opens up the possibility of, of employing people that you've never had before. You know, mm-hmm. think about employee, even, you know, part-time retired nurses, Maybe they just want a little additional mm-hmm. income, uh, and you don't yeah. have a you don't have a need for a full time person, mm-hmm. um, and you don't have to pay for the the room for them right. to work, and they don't need to spend an hour 
if you're in some place where there's quite a commute, yeah. you could be commuting for an hour or so a day and, and I was gonna you say, know, just even, how much more efficient. Yeah, and I was going to say that's a big thing for urban situations, mm-hmm. but we have a problem here in Rochester that sometimes people, you know, living in the outskirts of the town, you know, uh, you know, come a long way. Mm-hmm. You know, they might live an hour and a half away from here because there's no jobs down there, but they yeah. come up here. So it's not just urban centers that are going to have that commute issue. Um, and, uh, and again, it really opens up the possibility. We know we have, you know, shortages of staff um but some of them are out there and maybe we can mm-hmm. we can recruit i mean i mean really there's no reason why you couldn't hire somebody you know in another state altogether mm-hmm. uh to do some of these uh, you know those phone calls or, or that yeah. off-site yeah. stuff you've got a great staff member maybe that's moving yeah. to a warmer state or <laughs> yeah. they just want to get into a little more rural area yeah. there may be a way that you can hang on to them and, and use some of their knowledge and continue I think we're going to have to get used to wearing masks. Um, I, I was thinking yesterday, Sue, I, I, I had a mask on all day long. I was in uh, Flushing yesterday uh, in uh, New York City. And uh, it, the funny thing about Flushing is that it, in, in that area, people have always worn masks for the most part. Maybe not everybody, but mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it, you know, I walk down the street and it doesn't look much different except that the number of people on the street were much less than I'm used to yeah. seeing in that particular area. But I was thinking yesterday as I had the mask on all day long, that it was actually starting to get comfortable with it, that it was, it's becoming a way of life, mm-hmm. uh, now. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure I ever got that. I, I would have thought that I would ever get that way. I have asthma, you know, so, you know, ha- covering my, my mm-hmm. face has always been, you know, restricting that yeah. airflow has always been a, a bit of a scary thing for me. But now I think I'm getting used to it and I, I'm not complaining as much about it um, yeah. as time goes on. And I think it's just, I, I don't, I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel on that one. Uh, for a while. I think it will lessen up somewhat. But boy, it's funny too, watching TV or watching old movies or something, how it's so weird. Like I I have that knee-jerk reaction that, oh, they're not wearing, oh, look at how close they are. (laughs) And and it's just so weird how it's been, how it's just become such a normal thing. Yeah. So my biggest concern is that my granddaughter is not going to know what my, (laughs) my, my uh, mouth looks like, you know, all of my pictures with my granddaughter are, Mm -hmm. and of course I'm not only am I wearing a mask, I'm wearing a KN95 with that funny looking bulge out there. So, uh, that poor baby, I I, think her grandfather's a bird. (laughs) (laughs) You have the same problem because you, you know, you've got your granddaughter too, but, um, yeah. So I think, uh, this is what really concerns me. Again, I thought I was had some very positive predictions here. Maybe they get a little <laughs> bit further on, but patients are going to be con- are going to continue to be leery about uh, you know during a crisis like this one to come to an ambulatory surgery center. Um, or, I mean, for that matter, just to leave the house. But mm-hmm. I mean, to come to an ambulatory surgery center where there's a possibility that somebody might be sick. But you more know. so, a hospital. So there's a good right. news. So that's the good that news we, is that yeah. it's more leery. They're going to definitely be more leery about a hospital. And again, mm-hmm. we've talked about this, and and you and I in particular yeah. talked about how really optimistic I am in the long run about moving some of those cases that mm-hmm. should have been moved a long time ago into the surgery center mm-hmm. setting from the hospital. Now this is actually going to push it. Yeah, and as they gather more data and they see how. Just how low the spread was in centers. I mean, right. uh, some, you know, some staff have have had some exposures, but generally it was when they were in their you know private lives. So right. I think right. that as, as this all gets center, digested yeah. and things are looked at as we move away from this, I think it's going to have good. Yeah, and somebody even pointed out that maybe even temperature monitoring and doing mm-hmm. some of that monitoring will be a permanent thing. You know, just making sure that people don't come in with uh, a problem, especially if oh, we definitely. Just, yeah, yeah, if we can't uh, uh, stop the the different 
uh, mm-hmm. types of, of things. I, uh, you know, and, and again, we've said this before. I don't think it's going to be respectable ever again for people to come to sit, to work sick. Yeah. You know, you're going to be, um, it's going to be, uh, you're going to be socially, uh, ostracized, uh, ostracized yeah. for uh, coming to, <laughs> and, and in the past you were praised. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that won't happen. I think there's also going to be changes in sick time programs too. You know, we're already trying to figure out how best to, I mean, we already have problems in many of our organizations mm-hmm. trying to figure out the mess that we created in 2020. Yeah. And I think you've mentioned before too that probably the technology with masks and PPE is is just going to improve. Yeah. I think I've seen that already. I, just some of the mm-hmm. more recent uh, uh, masks that I've been wearing, even the, the paper masks have been and better. They, you know, they seem to be stronger. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, they're not falling apart as easily. Certainly, the the uh, the cloth masks. I don't think have been improving much, but uh, and I, I'm really don't like those because I don't feel, you know, they're not frequent. They're not changed frequently, or they're not. We have no proof that they're being washed. What do you think about cleaning processes? Are, are we going to go back to the old same, uh, the same old, same old there? I, I don't think so. No. Those uh, don't think that those cleaning people that you hired uh, temporarily are ever going to go away. Uh, mm-hmm. There's definitely going to be the anticipation that in the future cleaning is going to be, um, uh, you know, at, at the forefront of what you're doing. I, you know, another thing that we've talked about too is um, how important it is to not. You know, the cleaner used to be the, the person that you'd put in the back of the room and, you know, you'd, you would kind of hide the fact that somebody's cleaning. And now, as we've been saying, <laughs> you want that yep. cleaner out there, you know, yeah, very obvious. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Being very – lights uh, flashing. Exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah, and the hand – but this has always been a thing. But, you know, your hand hygiene, you just yeah. want to be very obvious with it. And I don't think that's new, but it's just become more. Yeah. I, I got to say, though, I'm having a problem this last week uh, sneezing because, you know, with my allergies, mm-hmm. um, uh, sneezing has become a serious problem. Yes. So usually what I end up having to do is like, you know, s- you know, I'm in the middle of a conversation and I'll have to say, not excuse COVID. me, <laughs> right, not go <COVID. laughs> say, excuse me, and run to the closest bathroom. And then, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I'm back five minutes later after I've washed my hands and done everything else. And well, then usually I have another that. sneeze. <laughs> and you've always had that cough. Yeah, it's kind of a seasonal thing because of the asthma and the allergies. Right. And even before COVID, it was sort of people would move away from us. Yeah, right, exactly. And now it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Um, the importance of an inf- of an excellent in- uh, infection control pro- program and keeping it up to date. And I I think we've yeah. been good about this. And I think we have over the years been kind of building this. Uh, those that haven't listened to episode one nineteen, I encourage you to go back to one nineteen because we we had this wonderful interview uh, our interview with uh, Lori talking about this and the importance of keeping that up to date. But I think there's often been a thought, Sue, that. People are not terribly concerned about the infection control program because in many centers, the chance of somebody getting an infection from the surgical procedure itself or the the procedure Mm -hmm. itself was very low. And I've always said that that's not the total point there. And now things have kind of uh, flipped. Shifted. Yeah, shifted. So no longer is it that we're we're not – I mean, yes, obviously we're concerned about a surgical site infection, but people are realizing that infection control is Mm -hmm. not just about the surgical site infection. It's also about the possible spread of communicable diseases. Yeah, so even if you're not doing a very invasive procedure, it's still important. Right. It's no – I mean, and, and from that standpoint, it's no different if you're doing a pain management procedure, mm-hmm. a GI procedure, or yeah. a, a surgical procedure. It's just with a surgical procedure that's invasive, you're more likely to have a surgical site infection. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the communicable diseases are still uh, just as likely in all three of those settings. Yeah. 
Also, I just really want to emphasize the importance of ongoing education for infection for the infection control coordinator and staff. And again, this is self-serving here. Uh, use the podcast. Most of our, our podcasts have some level of infection control discussions. You're going to find a lot more CAIP uh, credits in the next year, too, as we bring Laurie in and talk a little bit more about infection control and bring that to the forefront in the podcast. Uh, and also recognize, you know, that we are continuing to offer some specialized training that's available to our to our listeners here. Here also, um, and I'm, I'm afraid that the financial situation is not likely to be um, immediately resolved here. I think some centers are doing okay, especially those that have been able to bring cases over from the hospital. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm concerned that our, our financial situation is continue is going to continue to uh, to be a problem uh, in in 2021. And a, a sad prediction I have is that some centers are just not going to make it. That the financial results or the financial strains that they're under. Are are going to put them under, especially, you know, if um, in the future uh, there's a, a movement toward, you know, reducing reimbursement rates, which we are concerned about uh, with, uh, you know, some of the future initiatives that have been proposed uh, for like Medicare for all or uh, single payer health insurance, uh, which mm-hmm. are kind of the same thing, not, not quite. Uh, so we, we have to be ever vigilant about that. So is that enough predicting? I think it is. Yep. <laughs> so again, we'd love to hear your thoughts. I think it would be nice to kind of sometime uh, in the next month or so to you know kind of uh, point out some of the things that some of our listeners have uh, brought up. We don't get a lot of feedback from listeners. Uh, and Sue, you've been wanting to do a live podcast soon. I think we might try to do that in January here before things get uh, busier again. So in the first couple of weeks of January, maybe we'll try to find a day to do that. So let's take a a short break, and then we'll come back and uh, have a discussion regarding uh, upcoming events in the ASC industry. In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. Now, those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a long time note that we have changed the <laughs> words in this because we used to say you are never alone in the ASC industry. And I think all we're of us getting, can say we're, we're starting to feel a lot of, very, very alone lately <laughs> because we can't go out to these conferences. So, um, but, uh, but it is important <laughs> that we so. keep you up to date with what is going on, uh, even if it is virtual right now, and what's available, too, on the ASCpodcast.com website. So So the ASC Association's Winter Seminar is now a virtual conference. Um, That will be January 11th, 19th, and 25th. This popular seminar, which is now a virtual event, as I mentioned, provides essential training for ASC billers and coders. During three afternoons in January, you'll hear from industry experts as they discuss the coding and billing updates for 2021 and share strategies you can use to maximize your ASC's reimbursements. And ASCA 2021 is also virtual this year. So instead of just like in 2020, um, they've had to go virtual. And this will be held on three days, April 26th, May 3rd, and May 10th. And I believe those are, I can't remember what day of the week it is, but they are a week separated. Uh, some uh, The same content uh, that they do for the annual conference mm-hmm. will be delivered virtually. 
Um, then they, they have said that they want to get back to in, in person soon. Now, uh, I'm on the education committee and we have had uh, quite a number of conversations about this, but I have still not seen an agenda. And I, I know I'm speaking. I, I've got to admit, I can't even remember what I'm speaking about. So, uh, hopefully that agenda will come out soon and we'll be able to give more information about what's going to be available. Mm-hmm. And the 2021 Virtual Infection Prevention for ASCs seminar is February 1st and 2nd. And Lori will be one of the speakers. Absolutely. Get the resources you need to develop and maintain an infection prevention program that protects your patients and your ASC. This course, which is comprised of two four-hour days, will also help you prepare for the Certified Ambulatory Infection Preventionist, or CAPE, exam. And the 2021 Virtual Management Essentials for ASC Administrator Seminar is March 1st and 2nd. And the former name for this was the CASC Review Course, by the way. So the CASC Review Course has changed its name a little bit of the content to into the 2021 Virtual Management Essentials for ASC Administrators Seminar, a little bit longer. Um, and I'm one of the speakers. I'll be doing the financial section of this. Uh, as I said, it's March 1st and 2nd. So ASC leaders must be well-informed and prepared to meet all the applicable federal regulatory requirements and accrediting organizational standards. Hear from expert faculty with extensive experience in ASC management as they discuss what ASC leaders need to know about compliance, finance, and quality management. And the credentialing workshop that we recorded live on December 8th is available by going to the ASC podcast website at ASCpodcast.com. And we are getting a number of people that signed up afterwards. We had a lot of people that attended it, but it was a very well-received workshop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, I mean, a seminar, I guess, is the term that we use for it. And uh, it, it provides, uh, it's really designed more for people that are in the in the weeds in credentialing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, use it to train your credentialing coordinator on how to do proper credentialing. And administrators need to have it, too, so that they know what their, their credentialing coordinator is doing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, probably the most exciting thing that's been going on is uh, the Administrators Boot Camp. It can't believe it's uh, only about three weeks away. Uh, prepare for the challenges of ASC administration by participating in the ASC Administrators Boot Camp. And there is only one slot left in the winter cohort. So another one is scheduled for July, and more information will come out after this one is done. Uh, and also, we are going to be uh, working on another uh, Administrators Boot Camp program that will be more virtual. In other words, instead of including a live section. It'll be a mentored program uh, with uh, recording. So that'll be available throughout the year. So there'll be a couple different options available for administrators, depending upon the way in which they want the material to be delivered. The boot camp includes reading materials, virtual private consultations with myself, and an intensive four-day virtual conference presented in January 2021 from uh, January 26th to the 29th. The program is really designed for new administrators, administrators that wish to enhance their skills, and administrators that wish to prepare for certification. Uh, the ASC Administrators Boot Camp is the industry's most comprehensive preparation for the role of an ASC Administrator. So, uh, And we are working to try to find a way to make this really available year-round, as I said. So mm-hmm. uh, more information, go to ASCpodcast.com. Sue, we forgot to mention that if you're interested in all those things at ASCA, go to the ASCassociation.org website. I, I can't believe it's not in the, uh, the script there. And, you know, please, we always want to encourage people to become a patron member of the podcast. Patron members, uh, also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some of our virtual conferences, links uh, to important uh, websites, policies and procedures, forms, uh, drill kits, you know, example drills that you can perform, 
discounts and services in books and access to AEU credits on a quarterly basis. Membership fees help to defray the cost of producing the podcast, which seems to be growing every day as we uh, wear out our equipment here, including our research staff, travel costs when we actually do travel, mm. uh, now equipment costs uh, and production costs. For more information, you may visit asc-central.com or go to ascpodcast.com and follow the links for becoming a member. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, please, and consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intel Air. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. 